It is good to be with you. It has been a while since I've been here. I'm just going to slide that away. And uh, really a privilege to be back with you. I think it's been about a year since I was last here. And uh, always nice to share time with you. I always get questions about my family. They're doing well. Uh, my wife and two daughters. Uh, our youngest, Adriel, will turn six, believe it or not, on Tuesday. So six years old. Uh, our oldest is seven. We'll turn eight shortly into the new year. And so uh, Kaylee is in grade two at Legacy uh, Christian Academy and enjoying that, taking piano lessons and so on and uh, uh, doing well. Uh, Adriel is at a special uh, school called Pediatrics Plus and in a, a day program there and continuing to grow and develop. And uh, our lives are rich in uh, lots of joy, lots of laughter. And uh, we always look forward to bedtime when we get a little break, too. <laughs> no, they're doing well. Vanessa's home with them. Um, they do best in the first hour, first service, so they're not here uh, right now. Adriel uh, loves coming to church, and then she loves to have a nap immediately thereafter. And so uh, the second hour is uh, always challenging for them. But they're doing well, and uh, we're doing well. And again, it's a privilege to uh, be with you here this morning uh, to look into God's word as we sort of prepare. You can find your way towards 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, a couple of comments as we make our way towards that. Uh, I want to look a little bit at the issue of the gospel, which Paul is going to be articulating and addressing in 1 Corinthians, and the issue of culture. Um, the gospel and culture and how that really uh, uh, ties together in the area of God's revelation to us the way that the Bible works. So I'm going to pick up sort of a little bit on uh, Dave Francis's announcement a little earlier on uh, about going to the Holy Land and seeing these places. Uh, uh, allow me to set the stage this way. One of the challenges of understanding the Bible and then more specifically understanding Jesus and, and, and his life on earth and all that happened was, of course, that Jesus came at a specific place at a specific time into a specific culture, and none of those are ours. He didn't come in today, uh, today's age, today's, uh, he didn't come in recent days. He came some 2,000 years ago. He didn't come you know, to Texas. He came to originally Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem, and spent his time primarily in uh, what we would say today, the land of Israel. Uh, briefly, you'll remember, uh, uh, he spent some time in Egypt while they were hiding from Herod. And, and then ultimately, almost all his time was spent in, in the land of, uh, of Israel. Uh, he spoke a language different than our language. The customs and norms of those days were very different than our customs and norms. And so uh, I bring that up because sometimes we talk about things like they are culturally specific. And there is a sense in which Jesus coming to earth, his incarnation, his birth, his ministry, his death on the cross, his uh, resurrection, and ultimately his ascension to the right hand of the Father, uh, there's a cultural aspect to that. That is, that happened at a certain place and a certain time with a certain group of people around uh, him. Uh, but there's also a sense in which there is an application that goes beyond that culture to all cultures. And so Paul 
is going to wrestle with this. And I think as we start to get a sense of what Paul is doing and the time that Paul is writing in, I, I think it's going to help us a little bit to understand uh, today's challenges and what we have in culture and, and norms that people create uh, and, uh, and how that works into the timeless truth of God's word uh, in various cultures, including our own today. So let me see if I can illustrate this and uh, excuse me, show, show you kind of uh, where we're going. If you watch television and you watch the uh, uh, ads, you watch the commercials, um, there are certain things that need to be said in commercials to promote the products that are being uh, sold, and there's certain things that don't need to be said. And so I'm gonna use the car industry as an illustration because I'm gonna show you something that's part of our culture, and it's so much part of our culture that we don't need to say it. Okay, so if you're watching TV and out, out comes one of our car commercials or truck commercials or whatever, and they're telling you about the truck or the car and they're showing you its features, and you know that every vehicle is best in class. You watch any commercial. In other words, they all are in a class by themselves, and so that makes them best. It's interesting, but they're best in class and so on, and, and, and they'll tell them. And so let's, let's they tell you the features and everything and the financing that's available and so on and so forth. Here's something they never need to tell you. They never need to tell you in this culture that newer is better. That is, if I had a 2017 Honda Accord and you had a 2019 Honda Accord, then we all know yours is better than mine, right? Because it's newer. Newer is a part of our culture that's presupposed to be better. If Apple releases a new phone, the next model, the number 28, whatever number they're at, when they say that, they never have to say, and it's better. We presuppose it's better because it's newer. This is a culture that presupposes newer is always better. Now, is newer better? No, no, we, we, we know that, but we kind of say it is. Let's jump to sports. Let's go to Jason Garrett. You listen to any interview on Jason Garrett, who's the uh, coach of the Cowboys, and, and they ask about you know, last week's game or next week's game and everything, and he always has an answer kind of like this. Well, we're just going to work today, and every day we're trying to get better. Now, he's been coaching uh, eight, nine years, whatever the number is. Literally every day they were getting better for the last eight, nine years. <laughs> you, you look at any sport in any, any team in the off season, and the changes they've made are making them much better. Oh, we've really shored up the defense this year. Oh my goodness, we've added a lot of bats to the Rangers. You know, we're all better. Every team in the league gets better during the off season. And then bad teams are bad and good teams are good, just like they always are, right? It, it, it's, it's interesting, but see, we even have a name in this culture that people want to cling to. Some people call themselves progressive. You, you know what that means? That it's getting better. Getting better is a fundamental understanding in Western culture ever since the rise of humanism. That is, we are at the center of the world and we make things better. And so even talking about this is kind of silly because we don't need to talk about it. We all know that we live in a culture where newer is better. I mean, how would you like to see an ad on TV and it says, hey, we've got a car that's seven years old and it's even better than your car that's three years old. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. We, I mean, what, what, it's older, how could it be better? 
Of course, you understand that there are many cultures in the world where older is better. We're just not in one of them. But, 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 but there, there's, there are cultures where someone's opinion, if they're young, is never expressed because the only opinion that would really matter is those who are elder, who have more experience and more time. And this idea, and I just use this idea of, of the, the, the ingrained in our culture. You see, everything's getting better, and that's why you have various political parties making various statements. Presupposed is things are getting better, or we're going to make things better. Okay? That's part of our culture. Now, it's interesting if you stop and think about it. Sometimes brand new cars, they end up not being very good, right? They end up making a lemon, they make design changes, and, and they end up not to be good, and so on, they have to revert back, and so on. Sometimes the newest isn't better, sometimes the newest phone has all sorts of bugs and challenges, or sometimes it has so many features that you don't use anyway, you, you don't need them, right? But, but so even though our culture presupposes newer is better, and that the cowboys are getting better every day, and that the rangers are gonna have a great off season, you know, all those kinds of things, um, it, we all actually realize it's not true. So it's interesting, for the history of missions, some cultures have tried to reject Christianity because it's perceived as Western. It's in a certain culture. And so Paul is going to address this in a very unique way in 1 Corinthians. I debated, I was going to do this, uh, consider doing this from the Gospel of John. John does this a different way, Paul does this one way. But I, I want to use Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're just going to kind of be slow and work our way through it. And I'm going to stop and spend a little bit of time helping you understand the, the context of, of Corinth and, and, and what that's like and what Paul is doing and how the Gospel is unique in the culture. That's really what we want to get at because I think I can then show you how the gospel is unique in our culture. And so we begin uh, Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Maybe that's just a little bit of background. So Paul has spent some time at this place in Corinth. Okay, Corinth is in modern day uh, Greece, was in ancient Greece in those days. And, and Corinth was it's a little bit, I was trying to think of a U.S. city that, that is known because it's at the crossroads. When you're traveling east to west, you always go through it. When you're traveling north to south, you always go through it. I thought sort of maybe Chicago, but I'm not sure that's a great illustration. Um, East-west maybe, or at least historically. Now we fly, and so we fly everywhere direct. It's a little harder to figure out. But Corinth is at this crossroads where whether you're traveling on land north-south, or you're traveling on land east-west, or you're even taking a ship, Corinth is in a place where you commonly pass through it. So it's a, it's a common uh, port city, although if you went today, you're still several miles from, uh, from the Mediterranean Sea, but back in the days uh, that, that Paul was there, the Corinth was right on the sea and, 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 and a port city, but also through land travel. So it's very, very important. And then also Corinth kind of has a reputation like Las Vegas. So, so it, it's, it's a sinful place. It's a place where anyone can do, it's the old, you know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It, it's, it's debauchery and sinfulness, and, and it's a major thoroughfare. It's nothing like Las Vegas, which is in the middle of nowhere in a sense. It, it, it's at this major place where people are traveling through all the time. 
It's a bigger city, and I say that only because there aren't a lot of big cities in the days of the Bible. As far as we know, Rome was the biggest city in the days of the Bible, somewhere around a million people, and so that was massive. Second was Alexandria in Egypt. Third was Ephesus, and you'll remember Paul will write the letter to the church uh, at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, and so on. And Corinth is up there. It's a bigger city. And so, for example, if you live like Jesus in in, in Israel, you never saw a big city. I mean, Jerusalem's the big city, it's just that Jerusalem wasn't actually very big. Most people in their lives never saw a big city. So Corinth is this unique place where there's a lot going on. A lot of people passing through, ships coming in and out. There's very cross-cultural people from different places and so on. It, 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 is, it is an important city kind of in Greece uh, in general. Uh, it, it is a city where there's a lot of sin. There's a lot of uh, uh, idolatry. There's a lot of adultery. There's all sorts of sexual uh, sins going on, which is going to affect the church, and undoubtedly you're familiar with this letter, but, but nonetheless, Paul ends up there in Corinth, we think spends about 18 months there, and what does he do? He shares the gospel, and ultimately people respond to the gospel, and you have a birth of a church. And so you imagine these group of pagans, some Jews, most Gentiles, coming to faith in Christ, now having a new life, being new creation, and trying to figure out how do we, how do, we do church in Corinth in the first century? Well, undoubtedly, there were some trials and difficulties, and Paul addresses uh, many of those in, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. It seems there might even have been an earlier letter. We don't have it, but th there's clearly communication. So Paul was the one who founded the church, started the church, planted the church. He has ended up traveling to other places. He gets word of some of the things that are going on with the good folks in Corinth that he's led to the Lord and, and, and finds out some of the difficult things. And so he writes the letter, he doesn't have time to go there right at this point, so he writes the letter to address the needs of his dearly beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who have come to faith and formed this new church, this new body of believers in Corinth, in this very worldly, secular Greek city. Okay, that's kind of the background that, that we're reading. And so here's how the letter reads. Paul, uh, writing to the church at Corinth, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sonetheus. We don't, we're not totally sure who that is. Uh, it's undoubted. Uh, undoubtedly true that the church at Corinth knows who that is. There is a man with the same name mentioned in Acts 18, and it's possible it's the same guy. It might, might be someone else. We're not exactly sure. But undoubtedly, the church knew. And so Paul is writing in a general letter format that, that was quite common in those days. And so first, he identifies who he is. That is, if you're reading my letter, you need to know who the letter's from. So I am Paul. I'm the apostle of Christ, a follower of Christ, a servant of Christ by the will of God, and, and also from his other brother here, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Now, I'm assuming you've read 1 Corinthians before, and you, it gets pretty unholy pretty quick, right? I mean, this is a church that's really struggling. We often have jokes like, wow, I'd like to be like the ancient church. And then the joke, of course, is why? You want to be like the church at Corinth and all messed up like they were and so on? Because things are, there's trouble at the church. But notice what Paul is saying here to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified, made clean, made right, made whole, uh, and called to 
to be his set-apart people, his holy people, unique people in the city of Corinth, these people who uh, are sanctified by Christ, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And so with the mindset that when Paul's writing a letter, often it's getting copied and then it's getting shared with other places. And so he even mentions, you know, I'm writing this to Corinth, but undoubtedly this is going to meet uh, and reach more believers and greetings to all of you as well. And if you will, if you kind of think about it, Paul's writing this letter and here we are reading it in Marathon. I mean, it's just interesting how God has used this letter. There's lots we could do about the introduction and all the things that Paul is saying. Uh, for our purposes, since we're not trying to cover all of 1 Corinthians, we're not, are we? I mean, we're still, just want to make sure, right? We still have that, that, that noon thing that we're trying to hit. All right, so we're not doing that. Otherwise, we'd spend a little more time on the introduction, and it is important. But we just get a general sense that he's saying who he is, and then he's honoring the, the church. And again, the church are the people of God. We're not writing to a building. We're not writing to a location. We're writing to people. And which people? Well, people that earlier Paul had led to Christ. Paul had preached to, and they had responded. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the greeting is, verse 3, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, a common greeting that Paul will use in many of his letters as he uh, uh, addresses uh, the people. So there's kind of the background, the introduction to the letter, and then he begins to uh, write. And what was common in letter exchanges uh, in those days was you generally begin with a form of thanksgiving. And so this is done when a son, a soldier, writes home to his mom, lets him know how things, lets her know how things are going on the front. They they would follow this form. This is just, this is not like a Christian form. It's just a cultural form. This is how they did letters. And we do letters our way, or we do email now, whatever it happens to be. And this is the way they did that. All right. Verse four, Paul writes, he says, I always thank my God for you. Why? I mean, Paul knows things are a disaster right now in the church. Why are you thanking uh, God for them? Uh, because of his grace, God's grace, given to you in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful for God's grace that's been extended to you, which is going to be interesting. Again, if you looked at the whole letter and some of the difficulties going on in the church, uh, one of the things that they desperately need God's grace because they're living in sin in so many different ways, and Paul is correcting some of these things. And so I'm thankful, I'm always thankful, because of his grace that came to you in Christ Jesus. Again, these are lost people living in sort of a, a Las Vegas-type city with all sorts of things, with, 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 with lots of movement around, people coming and going and so on, and God extended his grace. And so Paul is always thankful, and we can sort of appreciate that. Verse 5, uh, for in him, that's in God, or specifically in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in him, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God, thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Now, there's a lot going on there that we don't necessarily see right away because this culture is quite different from our culture. The Greek culture, which would be what would dominate Corinth, being in the uh, uh, part of Greece and uh, part of the Greek-speaking world, was dominated in the first century by the idea 
of ideas. That is, what was dominated Sunday afternoon there was not football, or the way sports dominates in America, or the way politics dominates America, the various things that are important there. What dominated there was talking about ideas, talking about philosophy. The, the, the people who were well-known in the culture were people who had ideas, people who had ideas of how things work, how you put things together. Every culture has a way of putting things together that people agree upon to make things work. It provides comfort. Okay? In our culture, it's very disruptive to say something like, we're not always progressing. Things aren't always getting better. That's disruptive because it comes to be a part of our, of our fiber. We, we, I mean, all of a sudden, then, if you start saying that, then on the commercials, then they'd have to end each commercial with not only is this new car do this, that, and the other thing, but it's also better than your current car. They'd have to keep telling you that. And so we, we create comfort by creating norms in our culture. They did in theirs. And so what was important to them, what was regularly heard with them was ideas, philosophy. And so the Greek philosophers, often we go to Socrates and Plato and ultimately Aristotle, all three Greek philosophers who lived during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the intertestamental period. Uh, they were sort of these famous guys and people would continue to articulate some of the things that these philosophers did and then sometimes other things. And so all that to say is there's two things that are great in Greek culture. Okay, speech, the guy who can say it, and knowledge, what they talk about. Greek culture is about speech and knowledge. And again, I'm not sure these are great parallels, but it's a little bit, I mean, sports is really important in America, right? I'm not saying it may or may not be important to you, but sports dominates a lot of the culture and something happens in sports and it makes the news and all sorts of things, a lot revolves around sports. The economy is tied deeply into sports and so on. Sports is important, that's my only point. Sports has become, it's more important to some than others, but sports is important in America, in Greece, Speech and language are important. So he's writing, and now watch what he says here. So he's, grace, he's grateful to God always. I always thank my God for you because of his grace. He's grateful that God showed these people grace, that you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge. Like, what, really? Are you saying that these people have it good because they're part of the Greek culture and the Greek culture honors speech and knowledge? It's not what he's saying, but it's certainly probably part of what they might be hearing or thinking, at least at the beginning. Verse 5 again, for in him, that's in Christ Jesus, you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge from Christ. Speech and knowledge from, from Christ. Not, not, not from Aristotle, but, but, but from Christ. That which you've heard from Christ, the speech from Christ, the knowledge from Christ, or the knowledge of Christ, God has confirmed, or God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So somehow, 
Paul and those with him bring the gospel message. And what is the gospel message? Gospel means good news. So what's the good news? The good news is in light of your sinfulness, my sinfulness, our sinfulness, in light of the sinfulness uh, of the people of Corinth, that Christ has paid for that sin, the, the, the price, the penalty for the sin with his own life, and, and that you can ultimately be forgiven and be given new life without any guilt, without any sinfulness, being totally set free through the work of Christ, no work of your own. Okay? That's good news. The good news is you don't do it, he did it, and he did it for you, and it's sufficient, and you simply can receive that. Does that make sense? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Okay? And so that's the gospel, the good news. And, and so Paul and his folks who were with him were preaching that maybe for about 18 months at this place. People came to faith. Some Jews, uh, uh, probably mostly Gentiles, uh, uh, come to faith and they come to, to, to believe this and, and, and recognize the, this truth. And now the idea is, look what he's saying, that you have been enriched, verse 5, you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all, with all kinds of knowledge. This is, again, in Christ Jesus, you've been given this. And this has confirmed, God thus confirming what we testified, our testimony about Christ among you. So what they're getting in speech and knowledge through Christ Jesus confirms what Paul had said back in the day when he was there. Okay. Still don't really know what's being said, but he's giving this confirmation. Verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. No spiritual gift. You don't lack any spiritual gift. There's no lacking in the church in Corinth. Well, undoubtedly, you probably know that the issue of spiritual gifts is going to come up in this letter multiple times, especially once we get to chapter 12, and about understanding the spiritual gifts and so on, and how dysfunctional their understanding was for Paul need, needing to write this to kind of set them straight. But they don't lack anything. Hmm. It's interesting. So the whole thing about Greek culture was, I love listening to the guy who brings out the new idea and says it well. Okay, that's what's interesting in Greek culture. Okay? I love listening to new ideas. And Paul is saying, and you don't lack anything. You have everything you need. You don't need the new ideas. You don't need the worldly wisdom. You watch where he's going with this. He is about to, using the ideals of Greek culture, he is about to undermine Greek culture because it's ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ. And we're going to see a unique relationship between the gospel, the good news, and culture, where culture, if you will, falls short in its secularness, and the gospel has a timelessness about it. Verse 7 again, Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. This idea of revealed or revelation as God reveals himself. This ultimately means a few different things. One is that they're continuing to learn more about Jesus. And ultimately, one day, Jesus will be revealed face to face when he returns. And so there's, there's also the sort of the ongoing learning and ultimately the return of Christ is all encapsulated in this. And, and it's the idea that as we learn more of Christ, learn more, we have, well, we don't lack any spiritual gift. We don't have any lacking. 
what Paul is doing here is he's describing revelation. That is what we learn about Christ. That is ultimately for us, God's word. Not lacking anything. Not waiting for the next newest thing. That's part of our culture. Not waiting for the latest philosophical idea. That's the Greek culture. And yet what Paul is saying is in Christ, in his revelation, as he's being revealed, you have everything you need. And so he's working in a culturally sensitive context to show how what you got isn't cultural. It's not just the latest idea, now there's new ideas, now that Paul's gone on to other places, but it's that you have not, you're not lacking anything. Verse 8, he, that's also Christ Jesus, will also keep you uh, firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That would be the day of his return. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's beginning to introduce this idea. And Paul, not me, is just trying to highlight this idea of speech, back to verse 5, and knowledge, which would be very popular, important things for Greek-speaking culture. They're all about the latest. Well, watch what happens. Let's just keep reading. Uh, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Again, these are not enemies. These are the people I led. Uh, I got to preach Christ to and the people who have come to faith and their brothers and sisters, right? Paul's not there, but these church members are the brothers and sisters of Paul, the spiritual brothers and sisters. There are brothers and sisters. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all you agree with one another in what you say. Oh, that's not really part of the culture. The whole part is everyone has their own opinion on everything. Everyone shares their speech and their knowledge, right? That's, that's how philosophy works. Well, my thinking is this and my thinking is that. As a matter of fact, there's probably a lot of similarities between Greek culture on philosophy and our social media culture where everyone has an opinion on everything, just might not be a very good opinion or very wise opinion, but nonetheless, people feel free to share their opinions. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you. Agree in what you say. But that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought, very much tied to speech and knowledge, mind and thought, common. In other words, Christ gives truth, you embrace that truth, you no longer have the divisions of I think this and I think that and he thinks this and she thinks that and I like them and I like that. I mean, that would never happen in the church unless, verse 11, uh, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says I follow Paul, another I follow Apos uh, uh, Apollos, another I follow Cephas and still another I follow Christ. That doesn't really sound very united. It sounds like they're just following speech and knowledge, right? That was the issue. That's how Greeks think. 
I've got a philosopher that I follow. Back in the day, some would be students of Aristotle or Socrates or Plato, and that, then these Greek speakers come to Christ and they take that same cultural idea, and I follow Apollos, and uh, I'm of Paul, and, and someone else, I'm of Cephas, and I, well, I follow Christ. You see what's happening? They're taking the norms for the culture and it's found its way into the church. And immediately you have problems. That's not how the church works. It's not about opinions or philosophies. It's not about, well, I follow this preacher, or I follow this Bible teacher, I follow this. It, it, it is never about that. It's always about the issue of Christ. And so Paul is addressing this. You can see what has seeped into the church in Corinth is the same thing that seeps into every church everywhere on an ongoing basis, is whatever the cultural norms are. The cultural norms find their way into the church, and the church often struggles to see them and identify them and defeat them and to live Christianly. Because to live Christianly is oftentimes counter to the culture, countercultural. Verse 13, Paul asks some questions then. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? If you don't mind, I'm just going to exercise a little authority here, and I'll just simply answer those for you. No, no, and no. Okay? Those are rhetorical questions in which they're supposed to see the answer, and all three times it's no. Is Christ divided? No. Christ is not divided. One body, right? Paul's going to address that in a different letter, but there's only one body. It's not divided. Okay? Was Paul crucified for you? No. Paul's alive. He's writing the letter. Okay? So that's clearly no. Uh, did uh, any of you baptize in Paul's name? No, you're not baptized in Paul's name. Uh, I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and, and, and Gaius. Excuse me. This keeps falling down here. Uh, so none of you can say you were baptized in my name. And now he's kind of thinking, yeah, actually, I, I baptized in the household of uh, 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 Stephanus. And, and beyond that, I, I can't even remember who I baptized. And it was anyway, verse 17, you can kind of see Paul saying, I didn't really baptize. Uh, I guess I baptized those guys too. But anyway, it does, you, you get the point here. For Christ did not send me to baptize. That's not why I came. I wasn't there to baptize, but I was there to preach the gospel. Now look what he says not with wisdom and eloquence. Well, come on, these are Greeks. That's the thing that's most important. The most important thing is we're not so concerned with what, you, what is true, but much more of what you say is true, which sounds an awful lot like our culture. We're not that concerned about what is true, but how someone presents, funny words here, uh, their truth, as if there's types of truth or levels of truth or various systems of truth. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize.